to the Weird Warriors podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. On this podcast, we normally focus on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. However, this time around, it's a special mission. We are going to be talking about the Haunted Tank. And not the Haunted from GI Combat, but the Haunted Tank from Vertigo Comics. So before we get right into what I'm talking about, I'm going to let Rich come on in and hit y'all with a little retroactive history. Yeah, because Max put the bug in my brain, I had to go back and figure out how many DC War books there are. Not counting all the showcase DC Comics presents, Brave and the Bold, etc., what random one-shots, annuals, and crossovers there are because that's too deep in the weeds. If my math is right, and it May not be. I'm a history nerd, not a math major. 1,415 down, two to go. Close to six long boxes of your favorite DC mayhem. Yeah, even I'm impressed. And going back to Weird War Tales 39, when I briefly talked about my grandfather's contributions tending the war in the most spectacular way possible... I literally work across the street from the Museum of Innovation and Science in Schenectady, New York, where he donated the RCA electron microscope that he did all that research with. I finally decided to see if it was still on display. Not only is it, but the microscope is so heavy, a thousand pounds based on my research, that the staff can't use their lift to move it around. So regardless of what exhibits the museum presents, that old electron microscope is on permanent display. And speaking of the museum, talking about perfect timing, their temporary exhibit is GE Comic Books, Adventures in Science, which showcases the impact of comic books on inspiring young people to study science and engineering. The exhibit features a collection of 26 comic books created by General Electric between 1945 and 1964 that told the story of electricity and other scientific innovations through the eyes of a fictional teenager named Johnny Powers. Visitors to the exhibit will be able to see the original comic books, as well as learn about the impact they had on inspiring a generation of students to pursue careers in science and engineering. The exhibit also features the work of veteran comic artist George Roussos, who created the vibrant, colorful style of the GE Science Comics. Roussos was also coloring DC Comics' Batman and later went on to work with Marvel, inking and coloring early issues of Fantastic Four and other important titles. I ended up having a long chat with the museum's president about my grandfather, Kurt Vonnegut, who worked at GE after the war and lived nearby, and this podcast after I saw the exhibit in the next room. I think we got a new fan from the woman behind the admissions counter who wanted info afterwards. I also helped the president get a contact at my job site so the two locations could maybe work towards a joint family event in the future. Needless to say, photos in the album. Moving on. Intel report. Just like I kept it in theme when I disclosed Haunted Tank for the Intel report for GI Combat 112, I'll keep it in theme as I announced Pride of Baghdad here. I mean, literally, both these stories are taking place in Iraq in 2003. Pride of Baghdad is a 136-page graphic novel, also by DC Vertigo, published in 2008, written by Brian Vaughn, art by Nico Henrichen based on a true story. In the spring of 2003, a pride of lions escaped from Baghdad Zoo during an American bombing raid. Lost and confused, hungry, but finally free, 
the four lions roamed the decimated streets of Baghdad in a desperate struggle for their lives. In documenting the plight of the lions, pride of Baghdad raises questions about the true meaning of liberation. Can it be given? Or is it earned only through self-determination and sacrifice? And in the end, is it truly better to die free than live life in captivity? I have a feeling this is another one I'm going to end up loaning to you. Yeah, I should hope so. I mean, that that's one I've absolutely heard of. It's been lauded as a classic for for decades now, 20 years <laughs> or so. But um, it's just one I never got around to reading. So, yeah, I'll yoink that off you next time I see you or whatever. Absolutely. Well, until then, though, while I wait to uh, temporarily steal more comics from Rich, we will take a little break while I get my heist plan together. And we'll play a little promo for another podcast for you. And when we get back, I should have my plans all figured out. And Rich will fill you in on the title detail. Hey kids, comics! It was the dawn of a new age of comic book podcasting. Hey Kids Comics was a dream given form. A place where two generations of comic book fans could work out their differences peaceably. It was a humorous place where nothing was sacrosanct and it was our last best hope for joy. But all things end. But from endings can come new beginnings. This is the return of a comic book podcast. The year is 2023. The name of the show is Hey Kids Comics. Michael and Andrew are back with an all new look at old comics and all old looks at new comics. You can go home again. Hey Kids Comics, monthly from Two True Freaks and wherever you get your comics-related podcasts. Hey Kids Comics! And we're back. So, as I said before the break, we are going to be taking a look at the Haunted Tank Vertigo miniseries from the early 2000s, and Rich is going to fill you in on the title details. As most of you should know by now, Haunted Tank is the winner of the inaugural fan-based voting from our Intel reports. A five-issue miniseries by DC Vertigo that ran from February to June of 2009. Script by Frank Marafino, art by Henry Flint. As a military-themed Vertigo book with a major character from the 19th century, but we would call the old comics man bell for our usual 1970s content would be blasting away like a church spire on VE day. You've been warned because this is going to get rough in spots. Cover detail of the collection. Cover price, $2.99. Art by Henry Flint. On a white background, a red block lettered haunted rests atop a set of tank tracks with a blue block-lettered tank over the tracks. Standing back-to-back, an African-American U.S. tanker wearing desert camouflage and carrying an M4 carbine glowers at the ghost of a Confederate officer. The officer is looking back at the tanker equally suspiciously, holding a pistol and twirling the end of his mustache. The flags of both armies form a continuous banner behind them, visible through the ghostly form of the Confederate. Don't see any killjoy here, so I'll move on into the comments and commendations. While I like the back-to-back confrontation portrayed, the all-white background makes this an incredibly boring cover. The five covers in this series are all in the album for this episode, and this is easily the worst one. 
Joe Kubert did an alternate version of issue one, which is stunningly better. Granted, this was still enough to get my attention and pick it up. Henry Flint did a great job on the gear and uniforms of the two antagonists, but I think something could have been done to spice it up a little and make it more eye-catching overall. I will agree that the Joe Hubert alternate cover is a much better drawing. It's just, it's Joe. It's it's fantastic. It's some, it's Joe Hubert, people. But for my part, I gotta say, I like this cover. Yes, it lacks a background to the central image, as, as Rich mentioned, but I feel that actually helps sell the concept of the series, or perhaps it helps oversell or overpromise on what the central concept of the series is supposed to be. But I'll save all that for the end, I promise. The conflict, again, promised within, is sold very well by the drawing itself, not just in the identities of the two figures, but, and again, as Rich kind of mentioned, in the acting portrayed by these figures through the excellent work of artist Henry Flynn. I feel the cover's iconic and gives a clear idea of what kind of story you should be able to expect to read within these pages. Okay, so before we go diving in, some introductions are in order. We're going to meet the crew. Jamal, the African-American tank commanding sergeant. Babe, a.k.a. Hillbilly the driver from the Deep South, Chop Chop, the Korean loader, and Hot Rocks, the Hispanic gunner. Book one, Shock and Awesome. These are all 22 pages, by the way. Synopsis. Jamal, Hot Rocks, Chop Chop, and Babe are the four-man crew of an M1 Abrams main battle tank. They're crossing a vast stretch of desert alone because of a mechanical breakdown suffered after Babe had run over a camel and are trying to catch up with the rest of the company. An anti-tank rocket suddenly howls in from in front of them and explodes when it glances off the armored skirt covering the tank's tracks. The concussion knocks out the crew and the tank stalls. A red pickup truck filled with over a dozen Syrian fighters roars in and they dismount to examine their prize. But from over Jamal's body, hanging out of their turret hatch, two ghostly hands grab the 50 caliber machine gun's butterfly grips. Before the uncomprehending eyes of the Syrians, a ghost of a Confederate officer fully materializes and opens fire. The huge bullets mow the Syrians down and riddle the truck. The enemy dead, the ghost ceases fire and admires the weapon. Jamal and Babe come to and are unprepared for the sight that greets them. At first thinking they'd been drugged or are experiencing the after effects of, a chemical, of chemical warfare, the now mounted specter bows to the tankers and introduces himself as James Ewell Brown Stewart. Babe is over the moon. Pull my tail and call me Oinker. My granddaddy told me all about you, the greatest cavalry general ever. Stewart is flattered, but insists that his deeds shouldn't be more honored than Babe's. At Jamal's prodding, Stewart tells a story about how resolute his convictions were regarding independence and that death would be preferable to defeat. Fitting, since he had been mortally wounded in combat. If God deemed I had fulfilled my destiny, then I was ready to pass on. Beyond death, it has been my burden and my honor to continue leading fine young men in this heiress cavalry. I pledge to equip myself to the fullest of my ability whilst in your company. Jamal is dubious. 
not buying Stewart's state's rights explanation of why the South had fought so hard against overwhelming odds. Jamal launches into a fierce tirade about the evils of slavery. But Babe interrupts, asking how Stewart decides which tank to ride with. It's Ma's sacred duty to assist Ma descendants in battle. Ours is a proud blood lineage of fighting men who carry the Stuart name into harm's way. Stuart's gaze falls onto Babe's uniform name tape, which reads Johnson. Jamal's name tape reads Stuart. A mistake has been made, Stuart whispers. I'd say there's been a giant goddamn screw up, Jamal explodes. Are you saying you're my great great grand something? I got a little white in me? Brushing off Stuart's protests, Jamal tells him to shuffle off, storms back to the tank, and orders Babe to mount up and wake the others. Later, Babe is singing Dixie as the Abrams races across the sand. Chop Chop and Hot Rocks are confused over the conversation Jamal and Babe are having. Driving through a cut in a berm, Jamal discovers four Iraqi tanks on the other side, their crews relaxing. It's hard to know who is more surprised. The Iraqis scramble for their vehicles as Jamal gives the command to engage. Having a surprise, superior technology, and a bit of luck on their side, the Abrams quickly knocks out three of the enemy tanks. But luck runs out as the Abrams slides over the edge of an embankment and they get stuck in the sand at an awkward angle. A mounted Jeb Stewart suddenly appears, charges the remaining Iraqi, and cuts off the muzzle of the cannon with his saber. The enemy tank commander sees Stewart and thinks it's a jinn as he opens fire with no effect. A saber slash decapitates him before running through another crewman. The Abrams has righted itself by now. Hillbilly and Chop Chop are speechless at the sight of a Civil War ghost with a bloody saber. Stuart insists that blood is the most important thing and that it would be a disgrace upon his honor if he turned his back on Jamal. Jamal has to admit Stuart had saved their asses twice already, and agrees somewhat reluctantly to allow Stuart to continue his mission with them. Babe pulls out a tattered Confederate banner out of his rucksack and attaches it to the tank's antenna. Killjoy! As will be revealed later, the mortal wound Stuart exhibits on page 8, panel 2 is in the wrong location. It should be about a foot lower. Comments and commendations. And we don't want this to be a three-hour episode, so we're skipping whole pages of content that don't material, materially contribute to the story, FYI. The page four splash of Stuart firing the 50 is the tease I'd posted from an earlier episode, which is still awesome. Page seven, panel three of Stuart and his horse bowing in introduction is quaint. Page 10, panel five, the discovery of the truth. Awesome. The craft of the perspectives on page 14 and Chop Chop's Star Wars Sand People reference is both funny and slightly cringeworthy. The deliberately outdated language of Stuart's, its racial overtones, and his confusion about 21st century slang references are nice touches as well. Last page, panel two, when he says, I even embrace your Chinaman, for example as is Jamal's understandable outrage over a Confederate overseer. I'm all over this. Alrighty. Well, for all of my CNCs, I'm going to focus almost exclusively on what I liked about each issue, because there is a lot to like in this series, and I don't want that to get lost beneath what I am, spoiler alert, going to have to say in my last words. So, on to the issue. The borderless panels used throughout the series 
are a great way to sell the cinematic storytelling style that was all the rage around the time this series was coming out. And it's utilized extremely well by Flint from page one all the way to the end. Page five, featuring Jeb's rampage, is the standout for me, with a nine-panel grid being used to display a scene of intense action and terrible slaughter without feeling too cramped or choppy. In fact, Flint uses the layout to add to the feelings of shock and tension in the scene. Kudos to the use of alternating color themes for the various panels on that page too, creating a strobe-like effect of shifting moods, perspectives, and tones in the midst of the chaos. It's the opposite of page 13, I said it'd be mostly positive here, where the slavishly realistic coloring just washes all of Flint's excellent drawing into a monotonous drone, in my opinion. But hey, like I said, I said I was going to keep this positive. So how about we check out the excellent boom sound effect on page 15, panel 5. And let me use that to call out and mention that I greatly appreciate not just the presence of, but the very clever and enthusiastic use of good old comic book sound effects throughout this series. Sure, some of them look a little copy and pasted. Computers were new and fancy at the time, but they're all used well, even if you can just tell they're copied from a file and pasted onto another tank cannon or whatever. And okay, this might be my longest CNC of the episode. I doubt that. I, I wrote that before I saw the rest of them, obviously. But I need to point out that page 16 is a great example of how to do the cinematic take on action scenes. Sure, it's decompressed as all hell, but it's also incredibly engaging and effective. Let's see if we get lucky with the next issue, which is called Book Two, Freedom Fried. We got a cover by Paul Pope, a mounted Jeb Stewart charges across the desert sword drawn and eyes ablaze. The Abrams brings up the rear, cannon blazing, as the sun sets behind them. Synopsis for the issue goes like this. Racing side by side across the desert, the two stewards talk about war, but Jamal gets testy over Jeb's references to his noble negra servant, Mulatto Bob, and that Jamal may become a soldier and negra of repute. Yeah, it, it, like like Rich said, it's going to get rough. So Babe is the one that sees the enemy first. Seven white pickups loaded with troops speeding straight for them. An RPG misses and the tank stops to return fire, destroying two trucks in quick order. In the middle of the battle, Stuart phases halfway into the Abrams turret and asks Jamal if he prefers the term darkie. As Jamal rages at the Spectre about how everything of value comes from the color black, Babe yells that the enemy is dismounting, and Hot Rocks mows them down with the coaxial machine gun. A shell from the main gun destroys two more trucks. Stewart continues to debate that black isn't a color, but the omission of it. But Jamal has had more than enough of this conversation by now. Aren't you supposed to be helping us? Get out there and do something. Stuart leaves the turret in time to watch two more trucks get blasted by a tank shell, 
and sees one last enemy bearing an RPG coming up on the Abrams' blind side. Stuart phases into the turret again and cries, On your left flank! The turret spins and fires the main gun, vaporizing the Iraqi. On the outside of the tank, Chop Chop's duffel bag is on fire, and Jamal scrambles to put it out. Sifting through his belongings, Chop Chop is abused by the others when they find a tattered Arabic for assholes book he'd been studying. Jamal and Stuart walk off to talk in private, and the others watch. Babe remarks that he'd heard Stuart had been a real skirt chaser in his day. Maybe he hadn't been too picky. Stuart discovers a dazed enemy survivor. I dug around the wood pile. How is this carpet flyer still alive? Give him the black flag, no quarter. The Iraqi speaks English and is interrogated about WMDs. He knows where a bomb making factory is and Jamal decides to investigate rather than proceed to the rendezvous point as originally planned. Stuart protests and tells Jamal a story of a personal experience at Gettysburg. In his zeal to disrupt the Union supply lines in the enemy rear, he neglected to relay vital information to Lee about the size of oncoming federal forces. By the time Stuart returned, the battle had been joined. You are the eyes of this army, and you have left us blind, Lee admonished. The battle and the cause would eventually be lost. <laughs> the lost cause reference. <laughs> Jamal takes Stuart's advice and heads to the rally point to relay the intel directly. After releasing the prisoner with MREs and the message that America has no quarrel with the Iraqi people. Once again, we have no killjoy here, and I didn't have any either. I mean, if I'm not going to have any on this story. I'm not a student of the Civil War or the Iraq War. So we'll move on to comments and commendations, and this time I'll kick it off. So I'll say yes. The title of this issue, Freedom Fried, did not age well. All that don't say French fries, say Freedom Fries crap was only for the stupidest among us back then, and all those people are even dumber now. But hey, maybe the author is trying to make some kind of point about that here. Maybe. On page four, panel three, the rendition of the tank's weapons site reminded me of the old Atari game Battlezone. So that was nice. I played a lot of that back in the day, the vector graphics tank game. And then on page five, panel six, we get a great Bakum sound effect. And on page six, panel three, I really dig the image of Jeb ghosting through the tank wall that, you know, came up in the synopsis above. Page 11 features another ambitious 12-panel grid with yet another great example of how and when to use that decompressed cinematic style for action in a comic book. It's, it's just something that Flint is really good at. It's not wasted space. He does it when it's appropriate, and it increases the tension rather than making you feel like you're watching something get dragged out. And on page 12, panel 4, I really appreciated that Arabic for a-holes joke, even if that is almost as hazily dated a reference for some readers as Freedom Fries by now. Two military terms. HEAT stands for High Explosive Anti-Tank, and EPW is Enemy Prisoner of War. 
the disconnect portrayed in this chapter is breathtaking. You have Jamal yelling to Stuart about how offensive terms like Nigras and darkies are. And you have Babe calling the Iraqis Dune Coons, page seven, panel four. It makes his frustration over Hot Rocks and the released EPW rapping and dapping to a song loaded with the N-word in the last panel of the story almost funny. We have our second consecutive Star Wars reference, page 10, panel four. I had to smile a bit at the panel where Nairaki is all about to be crushed by a flaming falling truck saying, I hope these versions are worth it. The first panel on page 20 is based on an actual photo of the Gettysburg Confederate casualties taken by Timothy O'Sullivan. Moving on, book three, Between Iraq and a Hard Case, cover by William Michael Kaluta, Surrounded by flying hawks, a massive General Stewart appears as a genie and picks up the Abrams as one of the tank's crewmen rubs a lamp. The Abrams and General Stewart arrive at Checkpoint Charlie to link up with the task force. Only the crew can see the general. Dismounted, Jamal strikes up a conversation of Schwartz, a Vietnam vet now serving as an embedded journalist. The tanker doesn't see the bus rapidly approaching from behind, driven by AK-wielding Iraqis, but Stewart does and jerks him out of the way. The crew riddle the bus with small arms fire and stop it. Chop Chop makes the horrific discovery. The bus had been full of civilians. Later leading an armored column down a highway, the crew broods over the massacre. It wasn't their fault. Terrorists don't care about collateral damage. Jamal and Stewart talk about honor and principle as the column enters an Iraqi town. Babe ridicules the squalor, but Chop Chop tells them about the great advances the region had given the Western world, like the wheel, 60-minute hour, and libraries. Stewart had recently discovered Jamal was a Yankee, and Jamal's belief in Darwin's blasphemous postulation that mankind descended from apes made Stewart question if he were a Christian, too. The argument grows. Too late, the distracted tanker realizes he's entering an ambush where nine Iraqi tanks wait. Stewart immediately charges, deflecting enemy tank shells with his saber. Jamal's Abram collides with an Iraqi tank head on, its muzzle only feet away from the enemy's turret. When they fire, the turret is ripped clean off the hull and sent flying. Stewart leads the charge through the enemy forces, and the American tanks follow Jamal, firing. A saber thrust through one tank kills an Iraqi gunner as the tankers escape the trap. Later, the confrontation between Jamal and Stewart continues when the ghost comments that gallantry is unknown to Yankee monkey men. Jamal pushes his finger through Stewart's spear. Go solid, you cheap special effect, and face me like a man. Time to get the monkey off your back. Hatred simmers in the eyes of both men as they glower at each other, but Stewart backs down. As Jamal storms off, Babe asks why he had done so with all his talk about honor. It would be improper to engage in a duel with an inferior officer, he replied. Babe answers, you mean subordinate, don't you? Killjoy, page 14, panel one. Stuart cuts a shell in half lengthwise with his saber. I don't know anything about shells for Russian-built tanks, but the shell looks completely hollow. I can't believe that would do much against the tank. Comments and commendations. Page seven, panel one is another one of those craft 
panels, the column of tanks rumbling down a highway, with their turrets alternatingly facing the shoulder to counter potential threats. Their verbal sparring that starts on page 11 is highly entertaining for a variety of various reasons. The origin of man isn't a one-tree apple orchard, don't make a monkey out of me, etc. Page 15, panel 5 of Stuart charging through flame towards the enemy tank yelling, For glory! is real sharp, as is the sheer devastation portrayed on page 16, panel 5 of the turret being blown off the hull at the point-blank shot. Have to admit, although the clues were there all along about Babe being a good old boy, complete with a Confederate flag tattoo and agreeing with the ghosts on everything, it's the end of this book we actually see him standing with Stuart while the rest of the crew stands with Jamal. Tensions are mounting. Alrighty. So for my CNC, I'll start off with page one, panel six. I gotta admit, I saw the humor in the big, stupid welcome sign. Even with the no French reporters, again, it's a, it, it's a product of its time, but I just, I really didn't like that whole, let's talk crap about the French stuff that was going on back then. Anywho, I, I did think that was a funny sign, and I thought it was, I thought it was a neat trick for the first page. On page four, we get a nice, effective splash image with the excellent vroom sound effect. And on page nine, panel two, I really appreciated the use of the tattered Confederate flag as the panel's background slash border device. And page 14 gives us a really cool battle scene, uh, battle scene opening featuring old Jeb. And on page 16, panels four to six, deliver one of my favorite sequences in this entire series. Enemy tank! And then the Abrams rolls into a tank and bumps, and then someone pops up out of the Abrams. You sure? And they see each other, and bam, 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 bam. <laughs> so I just, I love that. They couldn't tell if it was an enemy tank until they actually slowed down by bumping right into the other one. It's, it's just a brilliant visual gag. I'll try to badger Rich into putting it in the album. And on page 18, Jeb strikes at the heart of the enemy through a tank wall, which was very cool and very well executed by Flint. Again, I just got to mention his action scenes overall are amazing in this series. It's, it's worth reading the entire series just to watch Flint strut his stuff in the combat scenes. Page 19 of this issue gives us another ambitious layout. Again, another another trick of Flint's with a 10-panel grid that really works. And on page 22, panels 5 to 6, as Rich mentioned, we're teased with something that might actually promise to provide some substance for a story that has largely, in my opinion, just skipped over the surface of the promised conflict. The whole inferior officer. You mean subordinate, don't you? Will that little bit of tension get followed up on? Let's find out by charging on into book four, which is entitled, I Had Rather Die Than Be Whipped. Cover pencils by Shane Davis. Cover inks by Sandra Hope. Jeb Stewart channels his inner Uncle Sam. I wonder how that works. Standing in front of a Confederate banner, which is visible through him and pointing at the viewer. Along the bottom of the cover, he proclaims, I want y'all. That's a fun little cover. I, I like it. I think Shane Davis is a pretty good artist, and, and this is one of the more fun covers of the mini. 
So synopsis for this promising start beyond the cover. We start in 1855, Virginia. In front of her child, a female slave is grabbed by an overseer. Her hands are tied to a ceiling-mounted chain in the barn, and her back is exposed for the whipping to come. A young Jeb Stewart dismounts from his horse and asks, What transpires here? 2003, Iraq. Jeb and Jamal admire evening artillery softening up Baghdad. The rest of the crew and the journalist Schwartz are playing cards. Schwartz still can't see or hear Jeb. The crew starts telling their stories to the reporter. Chop Chop had joined for college tuition, a little bit of GI Doe. A judge had given Hot Rocks the choice of being prisoner 2513-B or be all you can be. Babe had joined up rather than join the family pig farming business. It's funny when you figure out what his favorite movie is, but nah. But Jamal was a true believer. I was called, I serve. Military service should be mandatory. As Babe disappears into the shadows to take a dump, two, two centuries mistake him for an infiltrator and open fire, narrowly missing it. Chop Chop and Hot Rocks are merciless in mocking the embarrassed driver. The next morning, the Abrams is again leading the way towards Baghdad's airport. Stewart is surprised to hear, in a Desert Storm reference, that this foe had been fought before. An enemy must be vanquished, else he will haunt you again. Bloody Kansas, 1856. Stewart had a run-in with John Brown. Three years later, they met again at the attempted slave insurrection at Harper's Ferry, Virginia. This time, Brown would go to the gallows. But if he'd been dealt with the first time, well, the topic quickly changes into a debate over slavery, even as Chop Chop guns down a group of Iraqi soldiers waiting in ambush. Suddenly, a sniper's round smashes into Jamal's helmet and he covers his face screaming. Stewart coolly pulls his revolver and returns fire, killing the snipers. He then quickly rides up the side of the building to the rooftops and clears the high ground of enemy troops. Jamal begins to realize he's unharmed. At the same time, he realizes the column had made a wrong turn. And instead of heading to the airport, they were heading into downtown Baghdad and the heart of the Iraqi defenses. Firing smoke grenades, the tank uses the concealment to turn around, even as Stewart continues to carve a swath through the Iraqi soldiers. The airport's defenders also open fire, and the running battle continues. The Abrams does its best Dukes of Hazard jump over the last barricade to enter the airfield proper. When Jamal is examining the hole in his helmet later, Stewart walks up to him. I had one duty above all to my country, Virginia. Every other consideration stood second. After all these years, we still don't know the full extent of the damage done. Some wounds are so deep, the healing hurts like hell. 1855. Back to young Stewart witnessing the whipping. What transpires here? Turns out the slave 
had stolen a loaf of bread to feed her little one and needed to have the uppity tore out of her. Despite pleading to Mr. Jimmy for mercy, Stuart just walks off as the whipping starts. The house mammy watches him and sees. You keep walking. Got's a long way to go. I mightn't be free in this lifetime, but I seen to it that you won't be free in the next. Killjoy, none. And, uh, you know, as it seems to be the pattern here by accident, uh, we'll start off comments and commendations with the person who read the synopsis. And that's me this time. So what I have to say about this issue, this is a short one, people, so it's not going to last much longer. You know, you're suffering here. This is the second time that my relatively recent viewing of the Good Lord Bird miniseries has come in handy for the show because that covered the whole John Brown thing leading up to Harper's Ferry. So what I noticed about it this time around, about John Brown and, and that stuff, is on page 10, panel 2. Does anyone else think that Flint drew John Byrne, or John Brown <laughs> to look almost exactly like a young Ronald Reagan on purpose, maybe? On page 19, panel 1, Jeb is hanging off the side of his horse, in combat. It's a cool image, even if his ghostly form makes such tactics irrelevant. And on page 20, panels four to five, as mentioned in the synopsis, I really like the sequence of the tank jump ending in the excellently chosen and rendered sound effect of splat. It's just great. It's great. You'll have to see it. And yes, on page 22, in the final panel, we finally get to one of the alleged reasons for this five-issue long miniseries, The Origin of Jeb's Curse. This issue, in my opinion, was stuffed with more filler than any of the others. And that's saying something. While I will do a history minute on Stuart at the end of the last chapter, I will say the title of this book, I Had Rather, I had rather Die Than Be Whipped, were the last words he said on the battlefield after he was mortally wounded. The cards the crew are playing with, page four, panel one, are ones that have the faces of all the Iraqi higher-ups on them for recognition purposes if you happen to stumble across one of them. I have a deck in perfect condition from Desert Storm. Picked them up at an Army-Navy store in 1990, and I knew right where it was for this write-up. Photo on the album, definitely a cool souvenir. The Jumping Abrams, page 19, panel four, isn't as unlikely as it looks. Top speed of that tank on paved surfaces is about 45 miles an hour. Floor it and hit a ramp and you'll get some air. Not a lot of panel call-outs on this issue, but uh, page two, panel three of the two stewards in identical poses watching the artillery is well done. Also chuckled at the act like a Claymore joke, page six panels two and three, when Babe went to poop. Face front towards enemy. For those not in the know, the face of that anti-personnel mind does say that, showing which way all that danger shrapnel is going to go flying when detonated. In both cases, it's a security thing. Also really starting to dislike, uh, dislike Stuart a bit. Some of the things he was saying earlier in the series could have been part of the age he came from. But the panel where the slave is begging for mercy, Stuart's Looking at the baby she stole the bread for, and he walks off anyway? Asshole. Moving into the conclusion of said miniseries, book five. It's a nice place to visit. 
but cover by Ted McKeever by the light of a full moon and led by a soldier on foot. The Abrams creeps across a damaged bridge in a city. Smoke from a burning car on the bridge fills the night sky where the mounted general looks on. Synopsis. 1841. An eight-year-old Jeb Stewart sees a bee's nest high in a tree. One look upon that yonder treasure and I knew I must have it. I blazed forward and I took it. Interesting story, Jamal replies. You think you can lend us a hand here? The Abrams is fighting down a city street loaded with civilians. Chop chop fires a machine gun burst into a car of suicide bombers, destroying it. An ambulance wails by, and Jamal is startled when her back doors fly open and a 50 caliber machine gun fires at them. Hot Rocks immediately fires the tank's 120 millimeter cannon at point blank range and annihilates the vehicle. A car driven by a distracted Iraqi general is knocked aside by the tank, which stops and takes the agreeable officer into custody. Most Iraqis think the Americans are still 40 miles away. Everything is in chaos. Indian country. That comment sets Stuart off on another tale about his 1857 campaign against the Indians, which bores the other crewmen to sleep. Schwartz arrives, and he and Jamal argue about the meaning of war. In the morning, the advance to Baghdad continues. The civilians seem happy to see them, but Stuart is wary. In 1862, not every Marylander treated them as liberators, although there had been this one particular lady. Jamal is more interested in the dead cow in the middle of the road. When the tank runs the carcass over, it explodes, triggering an ambush. A semi blocks the road and three Iraqis open fire. Another 120 millimeter round makes short work of them. Approaching the famous crossed swords statue in the park, Jamal can't believe his eyes when an Iraqi with an RPG pops out of a donkey-pulled hay cart and takes aim. The donkey takes the full brunt of the tank's shell. Schwartz pops out the back of a Bradley firing a vehicle. Chop Chop, exposed in the turret, is distracted by the display. Jamal's warning to him about snipers comes too late, and a, a bullet punches through the loader's ballistic vest, sending him sprawling to the ground. A medic is summoned. And Stuart tells Jamal that his sacrifice is not in vain. Though these moments try the soul, let us not shrink from the challenge, but rather charge forth to meet it. Tyranny is not so easily conquered, but the greater the struggle, the more glorious our victory. We will fight to defend our ideals and promote our values. We must exercise our power in order to exert influence favorable to our way of life. We will always prevail as long as our cause is just. Woe betide those who deny us our interests. For if God be for us, who can stand against us? He flashes back to earlier fights alongside American armor in World War I, Vietnam, and the Middle East. Jamal explodes. What does that have to do with anything? You gallivant around recklessly, no regard to the cost. You'd rather lose the war than admit you made a mistake. You love being in the middle of a battle, any battle. You've got war fever. You hide behind words like honor and duty, but it's just a cover. It's all about taking what you want. Why are you still here? Stuart stammers, then confesses. Back in Virginia, Stuart enters the quarters of Sally Sal, the slave from last issue. He has needs and can no longer resist them. Over Sally's protests, he throws her into bed and rapes her. A child was sired from our brief 
Enraged, Jamal punches Stuart across the face. Stuart continues, telling about the house Mammy's voodoo curse. His soul was now eternally part of the conflict and suffering so familiar to him. Amazing. Her curse was a gift. It allowed you to keep doing what you love more than anything else. Now you can be at war forever. I'm looking forward to never seeing you again now that our job is done. Picking up the hat, Jamal's punch had knocked off his head. Stuart replies, I'm afraid it won't be that easy. I feel the seeds of growing conflict may stall our departure. Opposing factions refusing to back down from their differing beliefs can only lead to one thing, civil war. And from a view far overhead the city, one can see the fires burn. The end. Killjoy, History Minute. No pickle hob helmets in 1917, the page 19 montage. Also have a bit of a perspective gripe on page 21, panel three. Stuart is mounted on his horse and Jamal is crouched low, taking cover behind the tank because of the sniper. How does Jamal punch Stuart in the head? Something doesn't quite... Yeah, whatever. James Yule Brown Jeb Stewart, February 6th, 1833 to May 12th, 1864, was a United States Army officer from Virginia who became a Confederate States Army general during the American Civil War. He was known to his friends as Jeb from the initials of his given names. Stewart was a cavalry commander known for his mastery of reconnaissance and the use of cavalry in support of offensive operations. While he cultivated a cavalier image, red-lined gray cape, the yellow waist sash of a regular cavalry officer, hat cocked to the side with an ostrich plume, the red flower of his lapel, often sporting cologne, his serious work made him the trusted eyes and ears of Robert E. Lee's army and inspired Southern morale. Stuart graduated from West Point in 1854 and served in Texas and Kansas with the U.S. Army. Stuart was a veteran of the frontier conflicts of Native Americans and the sectarian violence of bleeding Kansas, and he participated in the capture of John Brown at Harper's Ferry. He resigned his commission when his home state of Virginia seceded to serve in the Confederate Army, first under Stonewall Jackson in the Shenandoah Valley, but then in increasingly important cavalry commands of the Army of Northern Virginia playing a role in all of that army's campaigns until his death. He established reputation as an audacious cavalry commander and on two occasions during the Peninsula Campaign and the Maryland Campaign, circumnavigated the, army, the Union Army of the Potomac, bringing fame to himself and embarrassment to the North. At the Battle of Chancellorsville, he distinguished himself as a temporary commander of the wounded Stonewall Jackson's Infantry Corps. Stuart's most famous campaign, the Gettysburg Campaign, was flawed when his long separation from Lee's army left Lee unaware of Union troop movements, so that Lee was surprised and almost trapped at the Battle of Gettysburg. Stuart received criticism from the Southern press as well as the proponents of the Lost Cause movement after the war. During the 1864 Overland Campaign, Union Major General Philip Sheridan's cavalry launched an offensive to defeat Stuart, who was mortally wounded at the Battle of Yellow Tavern near Richmond, Virginia shot at close range through the stomach by a 44 caliber pistol round on May 11th, 1864. He died of his wounds the next day at the age of 31. The American army habitually names their tanks after her great generals and appropriately named, as most of us comic nerds should know, a light, a light scout tank, the M3 Stuart in the World War II era. Sidebar, the Abrams 
is named after Creighton Abrams Jr., who commanded military operations in the Vietnam War from 1968 to 1972. He was then Chief of Staff of the United States Army from 1972 until his death in 1974. Comments and commendations. Another military term. The MPAT shell, Jamal orders fired at the semi stands for multi-purpose anti-tank. Don't ask me what the purpose between that and a heat round is, I don't know. I should have brought up the colorist, Lee Luffridge, before now, but he freaking sends it this last issue. Page 8, panel 6 of the yellows and oranges of the sunset cast in the Abrams and silhouette is beautiful. Then he uses the same colors twice on page 14, as he has several times throughout the series, to incredibly document the savagery of street fighting. IEDs and roadkill was a thing in the sandbox. I have friends that deploy that still get involuntarily nervous about roadside debris while driving. Also, get a load of the camel spider on page nine, last panel. And to wrap on Jamal's point of Stewart just taking what he wants, the last two panels on page 12 where Stewart is reminiscing about that grateful Maryland woman in 1862, in the background you see the southern troops ransacking the town and beating up locals. I guess uh, Hearts and Minds is still a century in the future, eh, Jeb? And that kid Stuart looked at last issue before allowing the mother to be whipped? Yeah, that was his. Again, asshole. Okay, this issue makes up for the blah of its predecessor for me. On page four, panel four, the tank slams into a, I think, civilian-driven car, with a satisfying Cree crunch sound effect. And the intensity of the motion and the impact is conveyed really nicely, even without the use of a single speed or motion line. This is tough to do, but it's pulled off really well here. And as has been seen several times in this series, page seven, panels two through four, give us yes, yet another example of an excellent use of de uh, decompressed cinematic action. Again, this this is this artist's forte. If you want to see how this is done properly within a story, pick up this miniseries. So this is the scene wherein Jeb attacks a Cheyenne warrior, gets shot, then falls to the ground as the results of his severe wound upon the head of his enemy joins him on the way down. Not sure if Flint just embellished the severity of that wound to the head from the script or not, but it was a nice touch. On page nine, panel five, it was nice to see the old camel spider, like revisiting a fondly remembered internet celebrity of what now seems to be the distant past. And, you know, it is the distant past. That sucks. We're all getting incredibly old. Page 12's flashback gives us a nice break from the same old, same old color palette of what, I must admit, seems to be a plague for almost this entire series for me. But as Rich mentioned, the nice, bright, shiny colors, there's some brutality going on in the background, was also a nice touch. <laughs> and page 15, panel 6, gives us the, I'm sad to admit, because everyone that listens to this show knows I'm a big animal softy, gives us the rather hilarious image of an ass getting blasted. As Rich mentioned in the synopsis, it's cartoonishly violent. It's just like a black outline of the, you have to see it. On page 16, panels two through four, I appreciated seeing Jeb watch a mounted statue get blasted down in front of him. Huh, 
Yeah, get used to that, buddy. <laughs> and page 18 features a very well-drawn collage that Rich described very well and walked us through that page in the comic earlier with scenes from World War II, the Nam, and Iraq floating within the frame of Jeb's ghostly head. Killjoy notwithstanding, really well-drawn page. And I know I've, I've praised again and again the use of decompressed moment-by-moment -moment cinematic action in these pages, but on page 20, I think we could have skipped using this technique to portray Jeb's rape of the enslaved Sally. I can maybe see what they were going for, like not averting our eyes from the brutality of history, etc. But as a page in a comic book, I don't think I need that sitting around permanently bound into a book in my house. Again, it's, it's a tightrope there, and I feel like eh, it just fell off the wrong side of it a bit. On page 21, near the end here, panel three, there's a rare bungle in Flint's visual storytelling, which Rich found trouble with too earlier on here. Uh, as I had to look at that image a few times to understand that Jamal was actually punching and making contact with Jeb's otherwise intangible face. It's the most unclear moment in five issues. Everybody has one, but this one, really should have been a much bigger and much clearer moment in the story. On page 22 at the end, panels three to four, bring it all to a conclusion with that nice pull away to an aerial view of the area. And there's a stab and a message here, as, as the synopsis let you know, with some talk of an Iraqi civil war in the offering. But really, for me, it just ends up feeling like the story simply stops. So that's it, folks. That's the CNC. That's five issues of content covered by us this time around. There's no APO Weird War Tales, of course, to speak of. No letters pages here. So we're going to troop right along to our spotlighted ads for the series. And mine, <laughs> it's not technically an ad. I'm kind of cheating here, but I like this thing so much. I was so happy to see it that it's, it, it's technically a house ad, so it qualifies. There was a special sneak preview, and I believe the final issue of the mini, for a Vertigo title called The Unwritten. It was, uh, it was written, even though it's called The Unwritten, by Mike Carey with art by Peter Gross. It had a 40-page debut issue for only a dollar, which Vertigo was doing back then to launch their new series. We were... And a transitory time for Vertigo here. I think Karen Berger had moved on to a more senior position. There were other editors like Shelley Bond coming in. There was some great stuff. There was some stuff like this miniseries. <laughs> and, and there was The Unwritten, which is available on the DCU Infinite app. And I'm going to reread from the beginning as I subscribed to this back in the day. Its concept is you have a guy named Tom Taylor who was supposedly the model for a very Harry Potter-esque figure in Tommy Taylor, a series of fantasy novels written by his father who has disappeared. And of course, first issue, you kind of get the hint right away that Tom Taylor really is the kid from the book. And then the series gets into some seriously metafictional stuff with jumping between fiction and reality and blurring the lines between both 
And I, I'm not going to spoil anything for you here, but like I said, it's called The Unwritten. It's a Vertigo series, started in 2009. And it's it's so worth your time. If you're into anything I just said, if that hooks you at all, and if you have a DC Universe Infinite Ultra membership, I don't know how many more letters they can add to that acronym, but but you can read every issue of this on the app right now, and I recommend you do so. So for me, right there, just being reminded of how much I enjoyed The Unwritten was a really nice after-dinner mint for the end of this project. And now I'll cede my space as I, I re-bookmark The Unwritten on the app and let Rich talk about his spotlighted ad. Once again, I make my complaint about how bad the ads are in the DC Vertigo books. Movies I haven't seen, video games I never played. There were a few that finally started talking to me, and I'm going to go with one that appeared in the first two issues. Tattoo Regret? Finally, a devastating effective tattoo fade system that works. Regret it. I can't get a job with this tattoo. I did it on a whim. It's ugly. Whatever the reason for your tattoo regret, the reality is you want your tattoo gone. But how? Fade it. Effortless, laser-free, and in your own home. Doc Wilson's Wrecking Balm Tattoo Fade System will help fade the appearance of your tattoo. Guaranteed, or your money back. Forget it. Before you know it, your tattoo will be a thing of the past. This groundbreaking system goes deep into the skin to target the ink and fade it into oblivion. In home, nine minutes per week. Two times faster. No burning. Devastatingly effective tattoo fade system. Call now for your in-home risk-free trial and ask how to receive a free supply with your order. Yeah, now, as all of you know, I'm in the tattoo-happy military, and here's where I say that I am a unicorn. I don't have any. I see guys in the locker room just covered with them, and I wonder about the time and money spent having tats done in places where you'll never see them. Will I ever get one? Maybe if I ever deploy and three guys get killed and the unit decides to tat up to remember them, then yeah. Otherwise, probably not. But who knows? But to the ad. We're in the 21st century, so you want to believe this stuff works, but there's an awful lot of this crap that doesn't. So I'm just going to be a skeptic and say someone else let me know. All right. That's the spotlighted ads uh, that we have chosen out of these five issues. And now's the time on the show when we move along to a little section where we sum everything up called Got Any Last Words? I was slightly taken aback when I realized that I, Operation Iraqi Freedom began 20 years ago. None of us are as young as we'd like to believe. As any reader of GI Combat recalls, the only person that could see the ghost of Stuart was his namesake, which led his crew to constantly think he was a Section 8 nominee. There were some isolated exceptions. So the fact that the whole crew and the enemy can see him now is a change-up. I also can't recall Stuart ever getting physically involved in the fighting in the original series. If someone knows, let us know. I wonder if there was a rule change in Purgatory after World War II. Also, it appears we went from the good gray ghost from the original title to an egotistical slave-raping glory hound here. Nice. 
Even in the course of the series, he went from an inadvertently ignorant individual, do you prefer the term ducky, to someone that would have been right at home at an anti-desegregation rally in the Deep South 100 years later. No 1970s Confederate good feelings here. Marfino left the door open for a sequel, I think, if the door was there. Oh, well. The series itself I really enjoyed. It was fantastic. Total win. Although it, as Max said, it did end rather freaking suddenly. As an interesting aside, I was writing the script for this as we recorded the dead draftees of Regiment 6 story. And I was planning a trip to Charleston, South Carolina, where I visited Fort Sumter. Luke Ed already knows about this trip. Shout out. There are a few guys in my unit that deployed in armor earlier in their careers. I, I feel like I should loan them this series and have them look for killjoys that I just wouldn't see. This episode didn't take as long to put together as I thought it would, honestly. I'm totally on board to do another Intel Report special mission, guys. Alrighty. Well, <laughs> as I said earlier, I tried to focus on what I liked about these issues in my CNC sections, as the full truth of the matter is that I did not like this miniseries overall. In fact, on my first reread through of it for the show, I hated it. I hated it a lot. I remembered having a much better time with it back in the day when it was coming out on the stands, but rereading it now, I was left wondering just who the heck I even was back then. I think part of it is that this was just another monthly pickup back then that I found interesting enough to spend some cash on. I likely read it over pizza while yakking with one or two of my comic reading buddies at the time, Hi Rich. Then, like, decades passed. <laughs> Literal decades. And I guess my memory made this series into something that it wasn't. And that something was deep or meaningful or, you know, good. Now... As you've heard, I didn't despise every element of the series. It doesn't deserve total, you know, demerits from me. There's good work in here. However, what I liked did not come anywhere even close to making up for what I found to be the series' flaws. First of all, the opportunity to address the long-simmering issue of racist Confederate Jeb Stewart being portrayed as a hero is so badly squandered here that I wish they hadn't bothered. Sure. Some gestures are made that Rich has alluded to, and only toward the very end of the series, we plumb the depths of Jeb's depravity, but for the most part, we're instead treated to a rote and repetitive back and forth between Jeb and Jamal, where the ghost says something racist, and Jamal chastises him for it, but that's about it. Sure, there's maybe some attempt to, to juxtapose this ongoing argument with the casual modern-day racism being espoused in various degrees by Jamal's own crew, but again, that's all it adds up to for me. An attempt, a gesture, not an actual story. And that's how I'll sum it all up here. For all that I praised some of the decompressed visuals, the series itself, writing-wise, is far too decompressed. And in more ways than one. As I hinted at just a bit ago, the central argument of this series, and even the action in the series overall, feels repetitive without justifying that repetition through the addition of more meaning or substance. A very important and, a, and potentially deep topic is framed as the central theme, and yet all that's done even by the end 
adds up to the barest skipping of stone, of, of a stone across the surface of the subject matter. I feel like this writer was just not up to the task and might have done a better job by making this a shallow Lobo style farce you know, or like maybe one slightly oversized one shot special or a Mad Magazine style thing would have worked better for Frank Marafino's talents here, I think. Uh, I did look him up, and he's really not done a lot of other comic book work. He's done some Marvel Zombies stuff, which I feel like that tells you that, you know, gore and kind of shallow humor is his wheelhouse. But at least, like, a one-shot special or something like that might have been somewhat tastelessly amusing, and it wouldn't have overstayed his welcome. This just, for me, ends up not being much of anything in particular. And me being me, I wrote that CNC and I had a couple of PSs, a couple of postscripts to add. So PS1, I say, if part of the point of this series was to finally put some shade on the supposed heroism of Jeb Stewart, then maybe they shouldn't have made Jeb into the only reason that Jamal's crew was able to survive pretty much every combat they stumbled into in this series. He still comes out as the most kick-ass character in the book and, and the only reason that the protagonists make it to the end. So I know you tried, but maybe make him less of a freaking hero. Ah. Okay, so PS2, the constant barrage of racist and derogatory epithets from all of the characters in this series made me start wondering pretty quickly whether the writer was trying to make a point with the realism of it all, or if he was really just getting his rocks off having an excuse to include as many of these words as possible in the script. By the end, for me, it sure feels far more like the latter than the former. So, that's it. I kept that brief, believe it or not. That's my uh, last words, and I will let Rich take you into a truncated uh, dead letter office for this episode. Very, very truncated. Not so much a dead letter as a message on the message board. Uh, Bill Mooney reached out to us with this request. Hey guys, you seem to have an encyclopedic knowledge of war comics even greater than my own. So I have a question. I'm trying to locate an OSS story I remember seeing in the late 1970s about an agent posing as a ventriloquist whose dummy turned out to be an explosive device he used to commit an assassination. I think it was in an issue of GI combat or maybe our fighting forces. Any ideas? Challenge accepted! I remember the last issue of the original DC Showcase, number 104, being an OSS cover story and check that first. Nope. <laughs> or the shot. A bit of research helps me discover that OSS story arcs appeared in 25 issues of GI Combat and which ones they were. A bare hour after Bill's request, I had his answer. GI Combat 205 by Conagher and ER Cruz. Death is a dummy. <sighs> I do it for the fans. <laughs> Man, I love that title. And I, I, I want to read that one. My God, the whole thing sounds cool. I, I like that exchange. And I, I should mention, you know, it, it, even though we don't have like uh, some Gmail or social media likes and stuff this time, that's because we're in the middle of the summer slowdown and things stop syncing up quite as smoothly, <laughs> as smoothly as anything happens on this show, as they normally do. But I can still mention that if you, if you feel a little shortchanged, you want a little more Weird Warriors podcast in your life. You can go over to redbubble.com, 
you can still do it and search for the Weird Warriors podcast and get our awesome logo, which was designed and illustrated by Bill Walco of the Hero Business. Look that strip up online. You can go to redbubble.com. You search for the Weird Warriors podcast. You can get that awesome image on almost anything you can possibly imagine. And then you can have it for your very own for as long as you might want. Pass it down to future generations. Okay? So there we go. Dead letter office is closed. Everything's at an end here, people. Except, don't worry. Rich will give you a teaser for what's coming up next. Back to basics with Weird War Tales number 43. Bulletproof. The Flying Dutchman. The return of Barry from Bleecker Street. How can you even bear the weight? I'm really excited for the return of Barry from Bleecker Street. I like that first chapter a lot. I hope chapter two doesn't suck. So <laughs> anyway, while we're still blissfully ignorant of the answer to that question, I'll remind you all that this has been the Weird Warriors podcast. We have been the Weird Warriors. We have been the Batlam Bros. And we will always promise to make war. No more.